I read Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us not only to pay attention to these words that Luke has provided by your inspiration to us this day, that we would not just believe, even as Simon believed, that even those of us here who are baptized and members of a church, that we wouldn't just be content that we would seek, that we would be transformed by your word, that your Holy Spirit would dwell in us in true repentance and faith, that we would have a hope, not just an amazement at your might, but the amazement of your forgiveness of sins. May that be the transformation of our hearts this day by the reading and preaching of your word and by the movement of the Holy Spirit. We ask this mercy from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
I have a feeling that I'm going to end up messing up. You have Simon, and you have Simon Peter coming into the story later. And I don't know why. It's like it's not even mentioned that Simon Peter's name is Simon Peter, but I have a bad feeling that I'm going to end up tripping and saying that. So if I say that, do forgive me. I'm going to try not to get those confused. It just seems to be my, my lot in life is to get tongue-tied in those kinds of ways. This is a, an amazing story. It's a, a good story for us. Uh, I, I have no illustration for you or story outside of this because I think it's such a, a helpful story in of itself. This is a narrative. The, Acts, the book of Acts is a narrative for us. And I think that narratives are very helpful for us. They say that um, in different cultures that some people like direct instruction more. They, they respond better with direct instruction. And in certain cultures, they actually do better with story. In fact, Eastern cultures throughout the world are motivated more by story, and where Western cultures, they like to just be told what to do. Well, here we have a story that tells us what to do. So it's a win-win situation for us because we have this narrative about this magician named Simon. Now, all of us, just like in the story here of the Samaritans, we are amazed by those who can do magic tricks. I don't know of any little kids, um, at least group of kids, that don't like to try to do some kind of magic trick. I know my kids, they like to find different things to try to pull one over on me or something. They'll, they'll, often they'll break something, and if they've broken it so well that they can put it back together, they'll say, is it broken or is it whole? You know, and they, they want to play a trick on me. Like they've, just that particular thing alone is an entertaining thing to be amazed by. We are people who like to be amused. We are people who like to be amazed. So not only do we like stories, we like spectacular things. We like to be um, excited about something, to be drawn into something, to, to see a mystery. Well, here we have the Samaritans. And as I mentioned last week, this is a fulfillment of what Jesus proclaimed in the beginning of Acts, that his word would reach Jerusalem and go into Samaria and Judea into the other parts of the earth. That was the outline for Acts in the very beginning. When Jesus, before his ascension, he says that my gospel is going to go to these particular places. And so now we've entered into Samaria, and as we see the gospel being proclaimed by Philip, we now see a story about Simon. Now, I feel like, because I knew we were going to have some visitors, I wanted to do a little bit of recap on this big picture view of what's going on in Acts. And I think it's still important for us to see this big picture of what's going on in Acts, or we will be drawn to use this particular narrative for the wrong purpose. We'll misunderstand it. We'll use it as just an example of maybe the order of salvation. You have a situation here where people believe, and then we have a situation where the Holy Spirit has been extended to these people. And so we, we, we like structure. We go, okay, well, so these people heard the word preached. They believed, and then they, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And so we tend to want to draw into that and say, okay, well, that, that must be kind of how it was for me. Well, if we take things out of context, that would be a pit, an easy pitfall to fall into. But when we look at the fullness of Acts, we have to remember that this particular book is a recording of a very extraordinary apostolic time when God was bursting forth the doors 
of his spirit being poured out into the world. And that what is occurring here is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and Jesus' prophecy about the building and the reign of his kingdom. kingdom. And so that always has to be the backdrop for us. So we have this big picture view that what is going on in the reign of Jesus' moving the kingdom along. And then we have this story about a very interesting guy named Simon that we too are going to be drawn by just by the fact that this is an interesting guy. He is a guy who performs magic in front of people. What does this story mean? Well, I think it connects us with what that grand story is by Jesus showing forth his dominion over all principalities, and including those of the dark world and magic, and those are powers of, of unique, mysterious ways of the demon world, and also bringing it very close to home to us on considering the heart of this particular man. And I think that's where we should go in. So as we look at this story, I want you to be thinking about four different things. What is going on in Samaria? What is going on with the apostles? And that's the big picture. And then what is going on with Simon? And then I want us to think about what is going on with you. And I believe that if we think about that question of what is going on with Simon, it will help us as we go into the question of what is going on with us, what is going on with you, what is going on with me. Now, I do want to put as a foundation a theological doctrine that is foundation for us so that, again, that we don't fall into a pitfall. We have to remember that on one hand, this is a unique circumstance of the apostolic beginning of the church, but then we, on the other hand, we have to have some understanding of the nature of the Holy Spirit. And we've been given the fullness of God's revelation through his word. We can actually look in other places of his word to understand what is the nature of the Holy Spirit and what is the nature of our salvation. So I want to I highlight a particular passage, and if you have your Bibles with you, because it's not ambiguous, ambiguous for us to understand what's going on with the Holy Spirit, but if we just isolate down to this particular passage, we might be led to believe that the Holy Spirit was fully absent from Samaria until this time. You may even come to me and say, well, Charles, that's what it says, that they had not received the Holy Spirit. So how can you say that they had the Holy Spirit? Well, let's go to Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 16. It says in verse 6, it says, Yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom, although it was not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, we are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand 
the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We see here in Corinthians a doctrinal teaching that we cannot, in of ourselves, in of our nature, understand the things of God. We cannot come to that understanding. We are darkened by our own sin and by our own flesh. We cannot come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ apart from the movement of the Spirit. So this could be debated, and if you want to talk about it at lunch, we can talk about it. But for the purposes of this lesson or or sermon, I want to encourage you to see this as a, a foundation by the Word of God that the Spirit had to be working for there to be any kind of salvific understanding of who Jesus Christ is when Philip was preaching to them. But because we understand the fullness of the context of the book of Acts, there's something unique, a certain measure of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that is being poured out in Samaria like it was in Jerusalem earlier in Acts. Because we know that the Spirit has been present in showing evidence of drawing people to God even throughout the Old Testament. It's not like that in the book of Acts, the Spirit just shows up, that the Spirit has been behind the scenes until the ascension of Jesus Christ. But there is a special manifestation that is to testify the power of God and the fulfillment of the promises of God. And that's why we have to look at the fullness of what's going on, just like in the last couple of sermons, I've been back in Daniel. I'm always going back into the Old Testament because these are fulfillments of things that have been promised for ages. And so this manifestation of the Holy Spirit that is occurring in Samaria is a unique manifestation of it to pour the foundations of Christ's church to show for and testify the rule and the reign and the fulfillment of the promises that God has been given his people for ages. But on a personal level, the Spirit is moving people. They are believing. And we see that there is belief. We also know in God's word that even the demons believe. And so we know there's a distinction between acknowledging and understanding that God is God And then going to another level of understanding the mysteries of God, of a salvific faith. So that's a doctrine that just needs to be poured. And again, we can spend more time, and I don't want to go off on a rabbit trail in that particular direction. But that needs to be set forth so we don't go into the pitfall of thinking too much about that, where we need to be going further into the story, because I believe how Luke has portrayed this is showing us two things. So that is answering the questions for us. And number one is, what's going on in Samaria? Well, God is manifesting a unique apostolic fulfillment of what God has been promising. We see in the middle of the story that the apostles come. We have to ask, why are the apostles showing up? Why do they need to show up? We already have Philip preaching the gospel. We have people believing and being baptized. 
And so therefore, why do the apostles need to show up? Well, to answer that question, we can see in his own words at the very end, well, one we can see when he's talking to Philip, excuse me, talking to Simon. Peter is talking to Simon. And Simon is wanting to buy this power of being able to distribute the Holy Spirit. And he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. Now, let's think about this. What, where do we see lots being used in the New Testament? What's going, what, what, do they, what do they do when they're casting lots? There's a couple of things that might come to mind if you think about the New Testament when they use the practice of casting lots. Trying to choose they're trying to choose somebody. Who, who, what kind of people were they choosing? To fulfill a particular office. And so what we have here is Peter telling Simon that you are not a part of this particular fulfillment of an office. You don't have this apostolic calling. This is a gift that God himself, that Jesus administers for his reign of his church. You have no part or lot in that. He's not saying that you have no part and lot in the grand scheme of the kingdom. I don't believe that's what the focus is. He's saying that we have this apostolic calling to be here for a particular time and for a particular purpose. We have been called by God to testify, and we see there at the end of that particular portion of the scripture, that they were there to testify of the power of God. So the the purposes and the point of the apostles to be there is to continue to highlight what God is doing in the reign of his kingdom. And I'm going really fast here on, on those particular things because I want to get to the, the third question, which is where I want to dwell in most of our time today. So that's the big picture. And we have inside of that picture, we have a magician named Simon, which is teaching us that God is reigning over all kinds of things. We've already seen that he's reigning over the demons, that he's reigning over everything. And here we're reigning over, he's reigning over Simon. We have this story of, of Simon who in the very beginning, it says twice, they were amazed and paying attention to him. And just like that, I mean, let's just read that here, how quickly it transitions. It says, but there was a man named Simon, and this is going back to verse 9, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. That's a pretty significant title. This man is the power of God that is called great. Now, Commentators kind of attach it to do two different things, and it's, but it generally means the same thing. There's some people say, well, this is a, a false god worship, or they were wrongly attributing what power and what magic he was doing to the true God. In either way, it was, he was a false prophet. He was a false prophet that was able to amaze his people by his winsome ways and his magic. So whether we actually think that he was preaching a particular um, religion of one of the Greek gods of that time, or whether he was just mixing in different things in his magic to the true God, it doesn't matter. He was a false prophet, a powerful one, who had the power of drawing people to him. In verse 11, it says, they paid attention to him. You know, Luke is saying this twice now, that there's the, they're drawn to this. The people of Samaria was drawn by the things that he proclaimed. 
drawn by the things that he was doing, drawn by his particular leadership. For, they longed, for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. Now, this word amazed is, is beyond sometimes our being enamored by particular magic trips, tri- tricks. They, 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 were, they were astounded. When you look at the particular Greek word there, they were, it even says that they were outside of their mind, in a sense, with just tremendous power that this particular person had on being able to draw their attention to the things that he proclaimed. But just like that, in verse 12, it says, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He was beside himself. He was astounded. There's a tremendous lesson just in that transition. We have Luke here setting the stage that there was this one who had this tremendous great power, this tremendous name before the people. And just like that, with the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God, in the authority, the name of Jesus Christ, they believed. He dismantled that mini-kingdom. He dismantled that religion. He dismantled the power that Simon had with the proclamation of the gospel. This was an amazing takeover that Jesus has of Samaria. That that much that an enemy of God surrendered and became baptized, and was just amazed at what God was doing. So in the big picture, we see the nature of how God's kingdom is taking over and fulfilling his very promises. But then we get to go a little bit deeper in thinking about Simon. We have this, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them, but that had only been baptized by the name of Jesus Christ, or excuse me, the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now, until this point, it looks like that Simon is just a part of the whole group. You know, he's just brought in with the Samaritans. It is Samaritans, not Samarians. I don't want to say Samarians, but it's Samaritans, right? He was just brought in. But then all of a sudden we see this this interesting thing because we have Simon who says he was believed and baptized. He's kind of with the whole group. He's amazed just like the rest of them. But then all of a sudden something is highlighted about Simon. He wants to buy this ability that he is seeing amongst the apostles who've come. Now, mind you, the apostles who have been given a special calling, who have been chosen by the power of God, who've been given an office for a particular purpose of manifestate, manifest, maybe just testify. What's the verb for manifestation? Manifesting. Manifesting, that's it, manifesting the 
amazing power of the Holy Spirit being spread out through the world. And then we have him wanting to buy that. Him wanting to pay for that. And so the question is on the table, why would he do that? Why would he want to buy this particular power? He says, give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, this is why we want to rewind and go back and think about how we were set up with Luke on this story. Think about what Simon had. People paid attention to him. If we rewind and go a little further back in Acts, we'll see how people were paying attention to Philip in Samaria. And now he's lost that. He's lost people paying attention to him. They're no longer calling him great. They're no longer seeing this man to be the power of God. The true power of God has been (laughs) manifested before them. And he wants to go back. He wants to go back to the time when people paid attention to him when he had this particular power. What is it that he wants? He wants power. And then Peter comes down really hard. This reminds me of what it was like with Ananias and Sapphira. You read the story of Ananias' fire and you read the story of Simon and you're kind of like, man, he just, he doesn't waste any time. You know, it's like, man, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they were given their goods They just wanted to hold back a little bit. And like that, they're dead. And then here you're seeing, well, here's Simon. You know, it's like, come on, you know, this is a, give him some time to grow in grace, right? And here he is coming down hard on him right off the bat. You would think, yeah, that's natural. Simon is, he's he's from this world and he's been playing along in the games of the world. And yeah, he's, he's drawn He's amazed. He's, he would like to, to have some of that power too. Why, why did Peter have to be so hard? Well, again, we need to remember the special apostolic calling that Peter had. I don't know if there was a season of time, it doesn't tell us in his word, that Peter had to be able to discern what kind of character Simon really had. We don't know that really with Ananias and Sapphira. We don't really know that with Simon. It's possible that Peter just had a special calling of discernment that I do not have. I I cannot read your hearts. I cannot look at your intentions. I can make some assumptions, and that's dangerous ground. I can see some of the fruit of your life and maybe assume some things. But it seems that Peter has a unique particular calling and authority to tell Simon what he tells him here. He says, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part or lot in this matter for your heart, your heart is not right before God. Repent. Therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see 
You are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, I have to admit, when I read that, I was kind of like, man, he's just, how does he know that? He doesn't seem like a better guy. Sounds like he had a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of people following him. And then all of a sudden, Peter's coming in and says, you are in the gall of bitterness and you're in the bond of sin. You are still captive to sin. Well, let's go back where that, that term comes from. I believe that Peter is thinking about the Old Testament, which is what I always go back to when he is making this proclamation before Simon. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29, starting with verse 18. Now, the context is a little bit different, but this context drives home. And I think this is why he's pulling back. Just like when we see Stephen going back and saying the word stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, he's pulling back to the scriptures and what he is proclaiming and admonishing before his hearers. Peter here, I think, is putting his hand back into Deuteronomy, putting Deuteronomy before Simon here when he proclaims to him the insight that he has about the heart of Simon. In verse 18, it says, Where lest there be any among you, a man or a woman, or clan or tribe, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Again, often when we see these hard words being proclaimed by the ministers of Jesus Christ, they seem harsh and damning. But if it is true that Peter was thinking of this particular passage. He's saying, I see in you, Simon, that you're still wanting to carry the idols that you were worshiping and also proclaiming before the Sumerians. That you have heard what has been said. This covenant of salvation has been proclaimed to you. What kind of covenant was being proclaimed in Deuteronomy? In Deuteronomy you know that those people would hear the covenant proclaimed saying, I am your God, you are my people. And because you are my people, if you obey my commands, you will be blessed. If you do not obey my commands, you will be cursed. Well, the proclamation of the gospel is that because of Jesus Christ, you are my people. I am your God. Here are the blessings and the commands of Jesus Christ. The New Testament says that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their love. 
You will know them by their obedience. What we have here is Simon is recognizing that the same exact thing is going on. But Peter is recognizing that in Simon, the same thing is going on. He has heard the proclamation of the gospel. He is believing the general idea of the gospel. And he's saying, I shall be safe. Just like you have there in Deuteronomy. But in his heart, he is still walking in the stubbornness of his heart because he still wants to bring his idols with him. He wants to actually use the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as a commodity for his own idol worship. What does the word commodity mean? Well, oftentimes we hear the word commodity used in the context of purchasing something. It's useful. And when we put it in people's terms, we find that particular person useful. Simon here sees that Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit, that the power of the triune God could be a commodity for his own self-idol worship. That if he could purchase it, that he may be able to regain the uplifting of the idols that he still has in his heart. And the grace that's coming from Peter is saying that if you are like this, if you continue to think this way, if you continue to act this way, you will receive the judgment of God. That is a grace. He did not want to beat around the bush with Simon and say, you know, let's just give him some time here. Let him, let him kind of intermix his idolatry with the truth of the gospel. Let's be patient with him because that would not be very gracious to one who's still an idolater. He don't want him to be confused that the intentions of his heart are wrong. Well, what else is said in Deuteronomy? Just a few verses later in the same context, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1, talking about the curses that fall upon someone who is of this kind of heart. It says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. That's what he tells Simon to do. He says, repent. Repent, Simon, of this continued idol worship that perhaps God will forgive the intention of your heart. The intention of your heart of wanting to use God as a commodity for your own selfish purposes. Now, I want to stop here just for a moment. That Based upon all the commentaries that I've read, there's ambiguity to whether or not Simon is in or he's out. I mean, that's typically how we think. We want to know, does Simon believe? Is he a Christian? Are we going to see Simon in heaven? Isn't that what you're kind of thinking here? We even look at the response there, and you kind of like, even after, even after Peter tells him that, 
It doesn't, he doesn't actually do exactly what Peter says. At least it doesn't tell us that. Well, some commentators want to just go ahead and categorize him, categorize him into the area of, no, he's not. Church history has actually even considered that he is the beginning of Gnosticism for history. He basically begins, he takes that false religion that he had, and in, 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 in the Roman Catholic Church, that's where... That's what they consider of him, that Simon Magnus is what they call him. He is the the founder of Gnosticism. Now, John Calvin, he says, we've got to be careful here. The the passage doesn't tell us. It leaves us with ambiguity about where he actually stands. And I find that the way that Luke has presented this is a very hopeful ambiguity. Because we tend to want to quickly put people in categories, (laughs) cannot speak today, instead of let the tension be there before us. And I think the reason why the tension is there before us is so that the tension would be both for you. Because there's a hopeful ambiguity on not being overly confident in yourself. There's a hopeful ambiguity about wanting God to search out your heart and to see where you really are in your motivations. I don't think there's ever a time that any Christian should feel 100% certain that their thoughts and their actions are fully pure. Not in this side of glory. We will get to that place. I think it's a very helpful place for us to have a little uncertainty of how we are motivated. Now, I'm not saying that you need to have a lifelong ambiguity about your salvation. I'm saying that it's a healthy place for us, just like Martin Luther said, for us to live a life of repentance, continued repentance, asking God to continue to do his work in our heart in cleansing us of our sin. Let's fast forward over to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 30, as we think about this accusation of bitterness, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. This is verse 30 of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So we see this combination that when we have this bitterness and wrath and anger in our heart, that there is the grieving of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is not being manifested in working in our heart when we are holding on and still captive to the bond of iniquity, when that bitterness is still manifested in our heart, it is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let's move on. James chapter 3, verse 13. says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy... In selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is not the wisdom that's going to be coming down from the Holy Spirit, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition, notice what happened there. You had the word bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And then now by the time we get to verse 16, it says, and where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, still talking about the same thing, but he just no longer has the word bitter there. There will be disorder in every vile practice, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I think a lot of times we may isolate the concept of bitterness to just being upset and mulling over something that someone did to us. That, you know, man, this person did me wrong, or I've had this situation and it's just, I've got this bitterness in my heart, this bitterness in my, a taste in my mouth, just to, I just really hate that situation, and, and we hold on to a grudge. But the way the Scriptures is laying this out is that that kind of bitterness is interwoven with jealousy. It's interwoven with covetousness. That it's actually making it synonymous. That bitterness is a component of our desires of wanting something that doesn't belong to us. Wanting it for ourselves. That's where the word selfish ambition comes from. And so it starts making itself a little more clear for us that we see that when Peter is telling Simon, you are in the gall of bitterness, what he is telling Simon is, you're jealous. You're jealous of the power of God. You're jealous of us. Because God has given us this particular calling for this particular time to administer this gift to the church. You are full of selfish ambition. And every time it is mentioned, there is judgment because it is unspiritual. It is demonic. Peter is extending grace to Simon by saying, turn away from that and truly turn to the Lord. Truly turn to him in meekness, in humility, recognizing your sin. Now, last week I mentioned that we see the disciples are of this kind of mindset too with Jesus. And this is why I think we have to be careful. You know, there's three reasons why we would fall into the pit assuming that Simon is not like us. The first thing we would say is like, you know what, we're not magicians. Well, how many of you are here magicians? I don't, I don't know this gentleman that's visiting with us. He may be retiring as a magician, so I don't want to make that assumption. He could be a magician, but there's no one here that's a magician. So we go, you know what, I don't practice magic. And then two... I don't think of myself great. I mean, I mean well, let me ask again. How many of you think that you're just great? <laughs> I mean, even if we think that, we're not going to tell people that. We're, we at least don't want to, we don't want to, you know, open our cards out on the table that much. So we'd say, no, I, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm just, you know, I'm nobody. And then secondly, it's like, no, I would not have the audacity to want to pay for that. To pay money. I would never do that kind of thing when I don't have any money. How many people have money? (laughs) 
We would, we would say, well, we wouldn't do that. So it's easy for us to just go ahead and say, well, Simon's kind of a, you know, he's an interesting guy for us to observe. But, you know, I'm, I'm more like the rest of the Samaritans. You know, I believe, I've been baptized, I'm, I'm, I'm following Jesus. So I'm, I'm one of those groups. I'm just kind of in the background right now. We're just going to observe and see what's going on with Simon. Now, I don't think that's why it's there. Like I said, I think the reason why Luke put it in here, one of the reasons why God gave it to us in his word, is one, to show the power that he has over these unspiritual demonic forces. And then also to convict us. To convict us to consider how are we just like Simon. Now I want to give you three things that I think that we do. And I continue to do these things. It's convicting to go through this one as I was putting these together. There are three idols and they're interwoven idols. And the first idol, I think, is lifestyle worship. I think that we have these ideas of what our lifestyle, what kind of lifestyle we have, and I think we worship them. Secondly, I think we have identity worship. Now, you think, well, it's kind of a different, it's the same thing. And I said, no, it's kind of a different thing because some people may say, you know what, I'm never going to be able to achieve the lifestyle that I have. In fact, because of my circumstances, you know, you, you may feel like you're a victim about something, but then all of a sudden that identity, maybe it could be the fact that you didn't achieve the lifestyle you always desired, that that particular victimhood of not being able to have that, that identity becomes yours. So it could be all over the board. So when I say identity worship, it could be that you do have some kind of position and posture where people have tremendous admiration for you and that you have this reputation and maybe you are powerful to certain groups of people. Or it could be on the very opposite scale of that, that whatever lot in life you feel, you feel like, man, I am, I have just been treated God is not, he's just left me out to dry. And that becomes your identity. And I believe we worship that. And then lastly, experience worship. Now, I'm playing a little bit by pushing this, but I think a lot of times for us, we, to cope with all of this juggling of our lifestyle and identity worship, we, we deal with experience worship. We, we look for an experience. I just want to put those on the board for a little bit, and we'll, we'll come back to that. I want you to be thinking about that, and I'll try to explain that a little bit as I close here. But if you think about it, let's go back to, to lifestyle worship. So let's first look at Simon. Simon had this power and this influence, which you know, did cross over into his identity. But he had power, and he liked that. I mean, surely that was nice. He was able to function in that. that. That gave him provision, obviously. He has money. And he sought after that. Well, think about what, what drives you about your life. Again, I can't speak for all of you all, but I know that this has been for me in, in the ministry. For, for my whole life, it's been like this. When I was a youth group teenager, I wanted to be useful to the Lord. And I've told you about my friend, and some of you have met my friend Aaron. I idolized Aaron. He was handsome. He's funny. He can sing. He drew people's attention, and people paid attention to him. And Sunday after Sunday, and Wednesday after Wednesday, and youth retreat after youth retreat, I was just amazed. 
at what kind of man Aaron was. I wanted to go into ministry. So I went to college. I went, somebody invited me to go to King College, and I saw people there. These are smart people. People who actually didn't skip school, <laughs> but actually studied in school. And for some reason, in the Lord's mercy, I got to be accepted at King. I should have never been accepted at King. I don't know. Somebody wasn't looking at my grades. And I wanted to be like them. I wanted to have that particular lifestyle. I wanted to be known as someone smart. Well, that didn't work out. I eventually flunked out and had to quit and work at an appliance store where I met my wife, who introduced me to Reformed theology, (laughs) who put me under the preaching of God's word. I don't want to go too far down that trail. After I graduated, I went back to King, realizing I needed to be a good steward of my money and time and the resources that the Lord has given me. I went back, and they said, you know what? The fastest way to get out of here is just do a Bible and religion degree. I'm like, well, whatever. I'll do that. No, I think I'll go in the ministry. I want to go in the ministry. So Jennifer and I started looking at seminaries. We were ready to move. I got a job in Charlotte so that I could go to seminary at night. Not once did I talk to one of my elders about this idea. It was a personal drive because I wanted to be like these men who were respected. By the grace of God, he shut that down. And it took decades before I was ever to be in a position where I could actually be a minister. He had to humble me first in that. That's been a calling of my life that I still deal with now as I see other ministers. I wanted to share that with you is because we all have those different things that were people in our life or concepts of lifestyles that we, we want that kind of admiration. And we'll strive for it. We'll spend lots of time and money for it to get that idol fulfilled in our life. We will stay late at night. We will we'll do all kinds of things to achieve that. We are just like Simon in many ways in that area. And then in identity, we had he saw that his identity was wrapped up in being great. Well, we, we may not have that identity, but whatever it is that you hold on to, that thing that you feel like that this is who I am, that this makes me special, this makes me unique. And a lot of times I truly think, and for some reason my mind goes to people who are hurt because they are a victim of some kind of situation. That, even though it's sad that people run into victim situations, that can still keep us from enjoying the grace of God. We are sinners that must come to grips that we are sinners before a righteous God. If we hold on to that identity and feel like that that's what makes us righteous, that the whole world is against us, or our family's been against us, or our spouse has been against us, or our workplace has been against us, or the church has been against us, or other ministers have been against us, and we hold on to that bitterness, we will be kept from enjoying the mercies of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on that particular scale, and in the time that we're doing that, we often look for experiences. You know, Maurice and I went to the G3 Ministries conference 
And we heard this great preaching about some great things that the Lord has done. We were amazed. Weren't we amazed? We left filled and it was exciting. And you leave an auditorium of 6,000 people and as you walk out the door, you know what you see? Guess what you see? Books. Tons of books. Books everywhere. Videos and books. Books from pastors you were listening to. Books about pastors that were being referenced. Books about what God did with the Puritans. Books about the creeds and the confessions. Ministries of this, ministries of that. People who can fix your website and your church. All of this stuff. And you know what you do? Because you want to be great. You want to experience that amazement all the time. So what do you do? You dish out a lot of money for a lot of bucks. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with buying books and equipping yourself in the truth. We long for that experience. Sometimes we do that when we idolize particular moments in our life when we go, you know what? It was just really great when I was out there on that boat. And it was just beautiful. It was my uncle's boat. I think I want to buy a boat like that. I'm going to go do this. And so we might use funds and resources, maybe go into debt so we can try to have that experience. Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the boat. In fact, if anything in the world that I hope the Lord grant me one day, I hope I own a boat. <laughs> I love being out on the lake. Love being out on the water. Since Jesus was on the water a lot, I, think, I feel like it's got, to be, it's got to be okay, right? I'm sure you can figure out whatever that thing is. That it will become your God. That experience that you want to relive. Sometimes it's a particular moment. Sometimes it's a particular relationship. How you feel when you're around someone. And the rewarding benefits of what that person does for you. I've told you time and time again that in premarital counseling, I'll ask, why do you love that person? And that person will say, well, because that person makes me feel this, that person does this for me, and I love it when this person comes because they really just make me feel wonderful. And then the question comes, so you found someone who loves you as much as you love yourself. Very rarely do we love people because of who they are. Like they're, they're, they're truly a servant of Christ. They're truly doing this and that for the kingdom of God. They're humble and they're meek. No, it's usually about us. We're always bringing it back to us. And here we have Simon who's bringing this great, amazing thing. He got to experience this bursting forth of the Holy Spirit before the church. And he was tied up with his idols. But Peter gave him grace by calling him to repentance. I'm going to read one last passage for you in Hebrews that deal with bitterness. And we'll close there. Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Meditate on that right there for a long time. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
In all of these passages concerning the root of bitterness or the gall of bitterness or bitter jealousy, there is this distinction between the Holy Spirit or the grace of God or the goodness and the benefit of the blessings of God that are being withheld from those who are stuck in the bond of iniquity to whatever this jealousy, this covetousness, this idolatry of whether it's lifestyle or identity or an experience is keeping them from being able to enjoy the grace of God. That it actually defiles us. Peter did not want to tolerate this in Simon for the sake of Simon. He did not want Simon to be stuck in defilement away from this grace of God. This proclamation in Hebrews is for us considering other people to make sure that no one is missing out on this. If we see other people who are in bondage to bitterness and idolatry of this level, we want to make sure that we are reaching out to them and saying, you need to be free from this so that you may obtain the grace of God and the mercy of God. In the same book in Hebrews chapter 4, Verses 1 through 2, there's the answer for us. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. He's talking about this grace. For good news came to us, and just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It says, let us fear. Let us fear the wrath of God. Let us fear missing out on the benefits of the blessing of the Holy Spirit. What does that draw us to do? If we truly fear, it draws us to repentance. It draws us to acknowledging our lack before God. And when we repent, even though there's ambiguity in what Peter is saying to Simon, he says that perhaps, or something of that nature, that maybe God will forgive you. See, he's saying maybe God. He's not saying that if you truly repent, it might be that God will forgive you. Even though he had insight of what's going on in Simon's heart, I don't think he knew exactly for sure where this was going to go. So he was saying, repent, and perhaps God will forgive you of this intention of your heart. If you truly are repentant, then yes, but I don't know. I don't know where you're at. If you look in our order of worship and you flip back, we see that there is a promise in 1 John 1. But those who confess their sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins. There is no ambiguity to the mercy of God who truly repent. The ambiguity was whether or not Simon was truly of that state. So when he answers or responds to Peter and he says, pray for me. Pray for me that none of this that you have spoken will fall upon me. It could be taken two different ways. It could be that in his heart he is repentant. And he truly desires to be a servant of this kingdom. 
to truly see the good news as good news for his soul because he knows he's a wretched, sinful man. Or he could be still stuck with his idols, like a lot of us, and frankly, like a lot of our prayer requests. Pray that God will do this for my job, do this for my family, do this for my lifestyle, do this for my identity, do this for the experience of life that I want for myself. When was the last time someone's come up to you and said, will you pray for me? I feel like I'm, I need to repent. And I'm just struggling with it. Is that something we ask for? When's the last time someone's come up to you and say, pray for me that God, God will guard me from idolatry? This is the last time you've heard me ask that. I haven't asked any of you all to pray for me for that. That's what we should be asking God. That he would truly show mercy to us. That he would keep us from being in bondage to iniquity. This is the grace that God gives in the gospel. And the ending of this particular passage is very hopeful. It says, now when they testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The gospel is good news for those who repent. The gospel is good news for those who recognize their state. The gospel is good news who do not want to hold on to these things because when Peter says to Simon, let your silver perish with you, your idols will perish. Our boats will burn. Our houses will burn. Our reputations will burn. But the kingdom of God is everlasting. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. May it be that it would pierce our hearts. May it be that we, that we don't know where, for sure where Simon is. May it be that you would truly transform our hearts in submission to your love. Why would we not want your love? Why would we not want your spirit to be poured out on us? Why would we not want to just be totally given over to you? It seems foolish, Father, but we are fools and still in the flesh. Cleanse us of this. By the power of your word and spirit, we ask this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and let us thank the Lord.